Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. They used to say, go west. What they meant was go forward. Find your own way. Make something out of nothing. It can be tempting to take it easy. But discovery doesn't wait. So this summer, see what it means to make the most of dawn, dusk, and every minute in between. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hello, and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk Family Stories. Each Sunday, we read half a dozen accounts sent in by our listeners, describing how their families were caught up in the events of the Second World War. This week, we have some rather remarkable stories. I hope you enjoy them. first story is from Norman Clark. My father may have seen Hitler. That should keep you hanging on as I tell his story. 
My father, William James Short Clark, was born in 1920 and left school before the outbreak of war. He joined the local Territorial Army because they taught you how to drive, and in the late 1930s that was a difficult skill to obtain. He drove motorcycles and lorries in a Royal Signals unit and was called up and sent over to France. By May 1940, his division was on loan to the French army as a gesture of Entente Cordiale and he was stationed in front of the Maginot Line near the fortress of Hackenburg. So, when the German attack came through at Sedan, they were cut off and eventually ended up at Saint-Valéry where they were captured. They were then marched through Belgium to the Rhine, taken by barge down the river to a railhead where they all got packed into rail trucks, 10 horses, 40 men, and sent to Torn, now Torun, in Poland, to Camp XXA. They worked in various places, such as a sugar beet factory and in forestry, but mainly on farms. Now for Hitler. One day, the work party were out in the fields when they were suddenly told to stop working and stand still. At the end of the field was one of the main lines from Berlin to the east. Along came a very large armoured train, covered in AA guns, followed a minute later by an armoured train with shiny passenger coaches. A minute later, another heavily armoured flat train appeared. This, he was told, was Der Führer. Dad never told me if he waved. In 1945, all the POWs were marched out as the Russians approached, first north to the Baltic shore, then along the coast and into Germany at Swinemunde. From here, they moved south over the Elbe, eventually being abandoned by guards near Hameln. And yes, he did get payback. I think the men were sent to Scarborough, where he and a mate passed their time by buying a crate of beer each day and walking to a seaside bench and consuming the lot. My mother, Janet Ginty Jones, also went into the signals as a telephonist rising to sergeant. She was desperate to go abroad, but had to wait until she turned 20 in 1942. On one occasion, she was taken to watch a Polish para jump near Ely in Fife, unfortunately witnessing a Roman candle. She was posted to Perth, where she was wakened late one night by the teleprinter coming to life. Perth was HQ for the Black Watch, and what was being sent was the casualty list for El Alamein. When she did go abroad, it was to Egypt to work at the Middle East Exchange. Mum's barracks were in the centre of Cairo, near the Nile, where the Cairo Museum is, Tutankhamun and all that. She stepped out one day and there was Monty getting into his staff car. Annoyingly, she didn't have a hat on, so she couldn't salute. Or be saluted. And this one is from Jack Ashton. My grandfather was a farm owner during the war, and hence in a reserved occupation. Needless to say... I'd rather hoped he'd had a more glamorous role, like a Spitfire pilot, but I had to settle for him being the captain of the Sutton St Edmund Home Guard in Lincolnshire. This, I am told, was largely because he lived in one of the few houses in the village that had a telephone. On one occasion, a barrage balloon escaped from Wisbeck Docks and made the short distance across the fence to Lincolnshire. The Home Guard, ever alert, gave chase and intercepted the balloon. It took a number of men and a great deal of physical strength to haul it down and secure it to a grass field gate. You can probably guess what happened next. My granddad and the other men took a step back and congratulated themselves on a job well done. To their surprise, the balloon worked the gate off its hinges and continued on its way at a good pace, dragging the gate behind it. A keystone copse chase ensued, but all in vain. 
The barrage balloon was eventually intercepted and shot down by a Spitfire based at the Central Gunnery School at RAF Sutton Bridge. My grandad had what can only be described as a good war, the only family casualty being the loss of a grass field gate. Keep up the good work, chaps. Jack Ashton. This is from Tim Vaughan. My grandfather, Thomas George Ansell, enlisted in March 1941, aged 35. He was a countryman, living near the town of Ware in Hertfordshire, and had been married to my grandmother, Winifred, for just one year. Perhaps it was the holding of a driving licence, or the familiarity with agricultural machinery which led Tom to the RAOC. By the summer of 1942, Private Ansell was working on tank repairs at the armoured workshop at Aldershot Barracks and had qualified as Class 1 fitter of both motor vehicles and armoured fighting vehicles. Shortly afterwards, he was drafted to the Far East and travelled by convoy via Freetown, Durban and Mombasa, arriving in Bombay in October. Tom's first posting was at the workshop in Chaklala, near Rawalpindi, in what was then northern India. Before too long, Tom was on the move again to Bangalore, and then in January 1944, the unit was posted to the Ordnance Supply Base at the village of Kanglantongbi, to the north of Imphal. The transport companies were responsible for carrying out General Slim's insistence on an improved logistical supply chain. They ferried men, ammunition, and the Army's complex ration requirements along the single-track road linking Imphal and Dimapur. When the Japanese 33rd Division cut the road on the 29th of March, Tom and his company were ordered back to Kanglangtongbi and told to dig in at the newly named Lion Box. Numbers of men in the camp soon swelled to 2,500, although only a handful of the defenders were fighting infantry units. The remainder of the perimeter was held by supply personnel, engineers, mechanics, Indian sepoys and drivers. The Japanese arrived on the 5th of April, occupying the high ground surrounding the box. They began employing their customary tactics of artillery and mortar barrage, sniping, infiltration and banzai charges. Tom's company kept up their work on the vehicles during the searing heat of the day and manned the slit trenches by night. The line was attacked for the next four nights. Confusion reigned with the jitter parties and infiltrating Japanese soon appearing on all sides of the defensive positions. By Good Friday, the enemy had learnt the Urdu password and 50 wounded sepoys of 302 Transport Company were discovered lying in the casualty clearing station, having been bayoneted in their beds. The following afternoon, the RAF sent a squadron of 10 hurry bombers who strafed the camp, believing it had been overrun by the Japanese. One private, William Howard, was sent to warn the HQ that the camp was still held. However, he was hit by machine gun fire and lay seriously wounded. Company Sergeant Major George Johnson of the Royal Norfolks took the difficult decision to end this man's suffering and shot him on the spot, for the enemy were well known to be merciless against wounded prisoners. The majority of supplies and men were evacuated from the box and Kanglatongbi was abandoned. Tom made his way to Imphal where his company continued their work keeping the lorries on the road. By the time Tom was demobilised in October 1945, he had been promoted to Warrant Officer Class 1 and was acting in charge of the company. A pretty remarkable achievement for a peacetime gardener without any formal qualifications. When he arrived back in the UK, he had been away from my grandmother, his new wife, for three years and 154 days. 
My final port of call in researching Tom's history was the National Archives at Kew, where I discovered several months of the unit diary written by his own hand. Although I never met my grandfather holding this same piece of yellowing paper that he once fed into a typewriter in the Burmese jungle 75 years before, I felt a real connection with him. I'm not ashamed to say that I found the whole experience completely overwhelming and was soon losing the fight to hold back the tears. Thank you for helping me bring this remarkable man back to life. Had it not been for the We Have Ways podcast, I do not think I would have begun to explore his story. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. This is from Ben Brown. As a member of the Sywell Aviation Museum in Northamptonshire, I got to know a veteran by the name of Douglas Wallace Sturgeon, universally known as Dougie. Doug joined the RAF as an armourer pre-war and was posted to 19 Squadron at Duxford, where they were transitioning from Gloucester gauntlets to Spitfires. In the 1930s, it was very common for airfields to host Empire Air Days, The Hendon pageants were perhaps best known and often included a new type of aircraft park showing off the latest shiny machines to equip the Air Force. In 1938, the squadron was asked to send a Spitfire to a show and Doug and another airman known as Schofield were dispatched with it to act as ground support and to answer questions from the public during the event. The new Spit was a source of much interest. At one point, a well-dressed gentleman approached the machine and asked if he could have a good look round. Schofield immediately intercepted him, and explained to Doug that this was his uncle, and he would look after him. The gentleman didn't speak to Doug, and seemed somewhat aloof, but Doug thought nothing more of it. 
Both the man and Schofield spent a long time looking round the aeroplane, in particular at the tail section. Some months later, Doug was summoned to the guardroom at Duxford. There, flanked by two RAF policemen, was Schofield. He looked dishevelled and had had his uniform insignia torn off. Doug was taken to an adjacent room and questioned as to what he knew about Schofield. Doug truthfully passed on what he knew. It transpired that Schofield was the son of a German soldier and a British nurse who met when the former was wounded in the Great War. Schofield had regularly visited his relatives in Germany during the early to mid-1930s and had fallen for the propaganda of the Third Reich. When asked if he had met any of Schofield's family, Doug recounted the time he'd met his uncle. The uncle, it turned out, was a German engineer who worked for either the Reichsluftfahrt Ministerium or for Messerschmitt. In the early days, Messerschmitt BF-109 had braces for its tailplanes, whereas the Spitfire did not. Hence, it was assumed, the German spy's interest in the tail section. The CO was satisfied that Doug had told them all he knew, and he was dismissed. On leaving the office, Schofield was still there, and their eyes met. Schofield said, Well, Dougie, the game's up, but we had fun, didn't we? And offered his hand. Doug recalled that he didn't know whether he should shake the hand of an enemy in front of his CEO. He did shake his hand, and that was the last he saw of Schofield, who was transported off the airfield and into custody. Doug was told in no uncertain terms never to discuss this incident. He later heard that Schofield had been executed for treason. Despite his best efforts in researching Schofield's story, Doug could never find any further details about him, and he suspected that the records remained sealed at the PRO, now the TNA. Doug returned to Sywell and finally gained his wings. He flew Westland Whirlwind fighters with 263 Squadron before moving on to Typhoons and Mosquitoes. As a postscript to this story, Doug remained in the service post-war, flying hornets and meteors, and once had to bail out of a tempest over the Med in 1947 off the coast of El Adam. After floating in the sea for a number of days in his dinghy, he was found by a Royal Navy warship and hauled aboard. Doug left the RAF as a flight lieutenant in the 1950s and passed away a few years ago. He was a terrific bloke and he left me his Caterpillar badge, awarded following his Tempest bailout. I treasure it still. This is from Richard Power. In a recent podcast with Sarah Kovner, Al mentioned a British prisoner of war who was witness to the Hiroshima bombing in Japan. I know of such a person. His name is Jack Hewison and his story is amazing. Around about nine years ago, I would regularly say hello and engage in small talk at church each Sunday with a friendly old couple called Jack and Pat. One day, just before mass started, Jack slid down the pew and whispered to me, I was there when the atom bomb fell on Hiroshima. I smiled and nodded. Oh really, I said, and made some polite small talk, thinking this might be a fantasy or confusion. Then the priest arrived at the altar, which stopped the conversation. Jack's health deteriorated soon after, and I did not see him at church much, and he died a little later in 2014. I went to his funeral, and it was evident from the eulogy that what Jack had said to me actually happened, and so very much more besides. I later found out that his memories are included as part of the oral history record at the Imperial War Museum. There are eight reels, but I urge you to listen to them. What follows is a potted history of Jack's wartime experience. 
Born and educated in Edinburgh, Jack Hewison was a member of the Royal Naval Wireless Auxiliary Reserve, and he joined the Navy in 1938. On the outbreak of war, he served on convoy duties in the North Atlantic and was posted to Singapore in 1941, then to Hong Kong to join the 2nd Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron. His ship was destroyed during a Japanese bombing raid, and Jack was captured at the surrender of Hong Kong and went into captivity at Sham Shui Po Camp in Kowloon. At the capture of Hong Kong, Jack went through a most traumatic time which stayed with him all his life. He felt the guilt of unknowingly identifying the location of a hospital which resulted in the Red Cross nurses being raped by Japanese soldiers. His personal journey in coming to terms with what happened and arriving at some form of self-forgiveness is something that has really stayed with me. Jack was put aboard the Lisbon Maru for transportation to Japan and en route the ship was sunk by the US submarine Grouper with great loss of life. Over 800 POWs drowned, but Jack and the survivors found themselves in the water and were picked up by Chinese fishermen. They were handed over to the Japanese in Shanghai. Again, he was put aboard one of the hell ships, this time the Shinsei Maru, and he landed in Moji in the south of Japan. Next, he was sent by train to Osaka, where he worked as a slave labourer on the docks loading and unloading ships. In May 1943, he was moved to Ichioka, where he worked until the end of 1944, before moving again to Kobe Hospital, known as the Hell Hole. Here he remained until bombed out by the US Air Force in 1945. In your recent podcast, there was a discussion about brutality in the camp. Jack describes an incident of beheadings by the guards over the theft of eggs. Jack was then witness to the Hiroshima bomb explosion, and he saw the devastation up close when he was taken into the city to help with the clean-up. After the Japanese surrender, Jack and his fellow prisoners were enlisted by the US 8th Army to assist with the repatriation programme, and he also spent time in various hospitals in Okinawa, undergoing treatment and medical evaluation of his exposure to the atom bomb. In October 1945, he was flown to Manila in the Philippines for further tests, and then on to Pearl Harbour, and finally he took passage to the UK on a hospital ship. On arrival in Southampton, he was transferred to the Naval Hospital in Portsmouth, from where he was finally demobbed and returned to Edinburgh well after the war had ended. Jack suffered for many years from his experiences, both physically and mentally, but he went on to have a very successful career worldwide with the Diplomatic Wireless Service, GCHQ, where he met and married his wife, Pat. He was a kind, gentle and friendly man, and he underwent a journey of healing assisted by the efforts of Keiko Holmes, a Japanese woman who helps to promote reconciliation between Japan and former Second World War prisoners of war. I really do think that Jack's wartime experiences are extraordinary and hope you agree. To think, all this came from a throwaway remark at church one Sunday. Kind regards, Richard Power. And this from Christopher Smith. I joined the army in 1987, and in July 1989 was posted to Berlin. I met my now wife during this posting. She's from West Berlin. The Second World War was a pretty taboo subject in the family, not just with me, but within the family as a whole. Here's what I've been able to pick up over the years. My father-in-law was born in 1944 in Litmanstadt, in what is now Poland, then East Prussia. His father was very anti the regime, but his wife and eldest son were very pro, and from what I've been told, he was lucky not to have been denounced. The eldest boy was conscripted in late 1944, age 16, 
and was discharged after being shot in the face less than two months later. My mother-in-law was born in 1941 in Berlin. Her father was posted as missing in Russia in 1942 and her mother was evacuated 200 kilometres to the east of Berlin in 1944. She fed back to the city as the Russians advanced. Later, she was one of the Trummerfrauen, or rubble women, who cleaned off bricks so they could be used to rebuild. In 1948, she met a man who became known in the family only as Uncle Kurt. Because her first husband had been posted as missing, it fell to her to have him declared dead. She waited 20 years to do this before finally marrying Uncle Kurt. As far as my wife was concerned, he was her grandfather. One day, while visiting on leave, my wife and I were sat in my parents-in-law's front room and her grandfather came in. We asked him if we wanted a cup of tea and he said, yes, with milk and sugar, just like I drink it with the British in the war. We were gobsmacked, as it was the first time he'd mentioned anything about his service. He told us he'd been a company quartermaster in Russia, where he'd learned to play the system pretty well, getting extra meat for the men. His company was 120 men strong going into Russia, and when they were sent to the West to reconstitute, they numbered less than 20. He was in France in time for the Normandy landings and was captured by the Free French, who treated them badly. But because he'd looked out for the company in Russia, his officers now looked out for him. When jobs for the POWs were given out, he ended up first as a cook for an American AA battery, and finally he worked in a British field post office. When his Wehrmacht uniform wore out, he was issued a British uniform. He told us that his main job of the day, working for the British, was to make sure that the tea was ready for their 10am naffy break. How about that for a set of stories? If you'd like to tell us what happened to your family in the Second World War, please write to us at wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or go to our Patreon page and click on the Family Stories tab. It's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>